This is Monday Morning QB, May 23rd, 2022. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Today on the show, how Buffalo residents are supporting each other after last week's horrific racist shooting. Plus, much ado about inflation. Childcare workers demand more. And the doomsday clock ticks closer to midnight. All that and more. Stay with us. The first funerals were held this weekend for people slain in last week's racist mass shooting in Buffalo. 32-year-old Roberta Drudgery, whose family said she, quote, couldn't walk a few steps without meeting a new friend, was laid to rest in her hometown of Syracuse on Saturday. And a service for Hayward Patterson, a deacon at a church near Buffalo's top supermarket, was held on Friday. More funerals are expected this week for the eight others killed. Besides providing emotional support, Buffalo residents are also banding together to help feed one another after the Tops shooting left the city's east side without a key grocery store. To learn more about how local activists are filling the gap, especially amid a nationwide shortage of baby formula, we turn to the newest member of the WPFW News team, reporter Asia Beckham. More than one week ago, Buffalo, New York experienced a racially motivated mass shooting that took the lives of 10 people, mainly elders, and injured three others. An 18-year-old male white supremacist opened fire at Topps Grocer, located in East Buffalo, with a gun in hand that had the N-word written on it. Topps was the only grocer in the neighborhood that was long known as the food desert, which the Center for Disease Control and Prevention classifies as, and I quote, an area that lacks access to affordable fruits, vegetables, whole grains, low-fat milk, and other foods that make up the full range of a healthy diet, end quote. Now several nonprofits are coming together to meet the need for fresh food and supplies that the full-service grocer once offered. A makeshift food bank is set up close by the supermarket that's now temporarily closed. What's now a food desert coupled with the national crisis of infant formula shortage is straining parents who are struggling to feed their children. There was already low access to infant formula across the U.S. because of supply chain issues from the COVID-19 pandemic and a recall of infant formula that was suspected of contamination at ABOT Nutrition's manufacturing plant in Michigan. That plant supplies about one-fifth of all infant formula in the country, and in particular, produces specialized formula for infants with allergies and other health conditions. Resident from Southeast D.C., Gregory Jackson is volunteering with Feed Buffalo, a Buffalo, New York organization whose mission is to heal educate, and transform food deserts into thriving communities. Gregory joined us now. Yesterday, you were picking up diapers, and today you and Feed Buffalo emptied out two 10-foot U-Haul vans that were filled with diapers. Can you tell us why you shop for this item specifically? The main reason we decided to get like diapers and, and toiletries was because a lot of folks are pouring food into this community, but they don't realize that you know, there's also a lot of children here and just basic essentials you need for childcare. Um, folks are dependent on grocery stores to get those as well. Um, so that's specifically why we did diapers yesterday. Can you also speak about food access generally and parents trying to put food on the table for all their children? Yeah. So Buffalo is extremely segregated 
you know, 80% of the black population lives in, in one neighborhood, a lot like, uh, or one part of town, Eastern Buffalo, um, a lot like D.C., you know, where folks are concentrated primarily in Southeast and Northeast. And, you know, we see in our own community, but in, in Buffalo, these are also the same communities that are neglected when it comes to resources. You know, there's a serious food desert here. Uh, this first grocery store was brought to the area a few years back, but before then, it was a complete a complete food desert where folks were dependent on corner stores for their essential needs. Tops opened in 2003 after years-long community advocacy efforts. It's conveniently located near bus stop routes to create broader access. Now that it's closed, the Tops has arranged a free bus shuttle service for East residents to go to other store locations further away to assist residents with food and pharmacy needs. Last week, Governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, announced that the local bus company would suspend collection of bus fares on the east side routes in response to that mass shooting. There's no timeline for when the Buffalo Grocer will reopen its doors. Another nonprofit, Harvest House, which has a baby and children's ministry, is a couple of miles from the Topps Grocer, and Carol Murphy, president of the organization, says their doorbell is ringing nonstop. Our job here is to to fill a need for, for moms who are living below the poverty level, but also those moms that just can't find the formula that they need. The store shelves are cleared out, right? And now here we are on the east side of Buffalo, the only store that had the formula is closed. In the city of Buffalo, the poverty rate is over 28% compared to an adjacent town called Chictawaga, which has a 9.5% poverty rate, according to the 2020 census. The specific area where the mass shooting occurred is also 78% black, per the Census Bureau 2020 American Community Survey. The suspected gunman, who is from Conklin, New York, nearly three and a half hours away, wrote a 180-page document saying that he pursued East Buffalo because, and I quote, it has the highest black percentage that is close enough to where I live. Now, since the store closure, Murphy and her staff are passing out info cards to share about offerings at Harvest House. What we're doing is we're passing out lists to people. Here's where, you know, here's where you can get this, here's where you can get that. So we're, we're getting that information into the hands of the people who are coming to the tops this week. Um, and if they're there and they get food and they say, but I need formula or I need diapers or I need a crib for my child, they're directed here. We're two miles away from the tops. About twice as many parents have shown up at Harvest House since the incident. Typically, the organization would serve 10 families a day. Now it serves 20. I just had a woman ring the doorbell, and uh, she said they told me to come down here. I don't know who they are. Um, I mean, it just happened five minutes ago. And in addition to extending their supply to parents with formula-fed infants, the organization is also leaning on neighbors for support. When I do an all-call to the community and I say, I need formula, um, people know, and they bring it down to us. Um, and and it's, a, it's a big lift right now. I mean, I have to say, I feel, I feel so grateful because I know it's how expensive it is. And, you know, people are pulling deep into their pockets to, um, to bring formula to us right now. 
Murphy says the biggest concern that she's had to advise against is parents who are stretching what they have by watering down the formula. American Academy of Pediatrics spokesperson Dr. Mark Corgan says, and I quote, it's extremely dangerous, end quote. Thinning the food is unsafe and can cause nutritional imbalances that can impact an infant's developmental stages. The United States Food and Drug Administration says it will take nearly two weeks to restart production at Abbott's plant and an additional six to eight weeks to bring the plant to full capacity. As of last week, President Joe Biden required that suppliers provide infant formula manufacturers with products first before any other customer that ordered those goods. The Department of Defense will also use its contracts with commercial air cargo lines to transport products from overseas that have met FDA standards. On Thursday, the White House announced its finalized agreement with Nestle that will allow 1.5 million 8-ounce bottles to be put into infants' hands. The effort called Operation Fly Formula is led by the United States Department of Health and Human Services. The White House has not announced a plan to reach Buffalo parents who struggle with access now more than ever. This is Asia Bagum for WPFW Radio. Rapid price inflation has dominated political and economic headlines for months, with cost increases for goods and services accelerating over 8% compared to a year ago. A recent 538 poll showed inflation to be the number one issue on the minds of American voters. In response to price pressures, the Federal Reserve Bank has launched a campaign to tighten monetary policy by raising a benchmark interest rate and selling off its massive balance sheet. But while American voters and institutions are united in their frustration with inflation, there is far from a consensus on the cause of the recent inflationary bout. Josh Bivens, director of research at the Economic Policy Institute, argues against the traditional story of wage growth fueling price growth, suggesting instead that corporate profits are the primary driver of inflation today. Bivens explains why the wage story of inflation doesn't fit our present reality. Yeah, I mean, I would say as sort of an introduction, the reason why it is sometimes thought that like the Federal Reserve has to step in and cool off economic growth as the primary way to fight inflation um, is the worry that if inflation starts generating wage growth, that sort of chases up prices, which in turn chases up wages, and you get sort of what, what economists sometimes call wage price spiral, that that's unsustainable. And so that's, that's the key dynamic that has to be sort of smothered before it can really set in. Um, and sometimes that dynamic actually happens. Sometimes you actually do have an economy where the unemployment rate falls. Workers really do get a lot of leverage. They're able to push up their wages, which puts upward pressure on inflation. And so sometimes that actually happens. That has not been the case over the past year and a half. The inflation we've seen over that time is clearly not driven by wage growth. And yet we still seem to be hearing a lot of calls to take out the tool that mostly works through restraining wage growth. And so I think that's going to miss 
most of the source of the current inflation, and it's going to put a huge burden of adjustment to bringing inflation down on a group of people, workers, who've already suffered pretty badly over that time period. Sure. You wrote in a blog post that labor costs contributed to less than 8% of this post-recession increase in prices, while over half of the increase is attributable to larger profit margins. I just want to ask you to take a couple minutes to explain why and how we know this, because I've seen some writers identify this profit explanation as a conspiracy theory, and I think that's an improper description. Yeah, so there's a, a really good data set that the Bureau of Economic Analysis publishes every quarter on its website, and it actually looks at the non-financial corporate sector, which is well over half of the entire private sector, and it basically breaks down in increase in price per unit of the non-financial corporate sector into three components, labor costs, non-labor inputs, so like materials and um, intermediate inputs, and then profits. And you can actually look at what causes a change in the the price per unit in that data set. And during normal times, the the cost of anything is about 60% labor, and it's about 12% profits. But over since the recovery from the pandemic recession began in sort of middle 2020, 55% of the increase in price per unit is actually being driven by profits and only 8% by unit labor costs. And then you get a chunk of it um, driven by sort of non-labor inputs. And so, yeah, that's just a matter of arithmetic fact. It is just true that profits are punching way above their weight this time and driving price per unit growth. And so, yeah, the idea that this is a conspiracy theory is just completely the wrong way to describe it. You may think that's unimportant, that profits have risen a lot. You may claim that happens all the time. It really doesn't, but it is just a fact. It's just not sort of a a fiction in people's mind that people have made up. You uh, say that a, quote, chronic excess of corporate power has built up over time, but that it manifested differently in the last two recessions, in 2008 and then most recently in 2020. How did this excessive power impact recoveries from these recessions differently? And what explains that difference? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. I would say um, in previous recessions, say since the early 1990s until the recovery from the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009, the sort of typical way recoveries went was we just had a very, very slow reduction of the unemployment rate after a recession. Unemployment rate spikes up, and then it takes a really long time to, to come back down. And during that period of recovery, wage growth tended to be incredibly anemic. Um, And we tended to have very low inflation too, but wage growth even went behind inflation. And so you did see a rise in sort of the share of all income going to profits over those recoveries. But that rise in the profit share was mostly driven by kind of wage suppression rather than big increases in prices. And this time, we've had a very different recovery. We've had a much faster recovery of the unemployment rate. It's dropped very quickly after being very high during the pandemic recession. Um, And nominal wage growth has been okay by historical terms. It's now running at like four or four and a half percent. But instead, and so instead of wage suppression being the thing that generated a big rise in the profit share, it's been a very large increase in prices. And so in a sense, if you just look at the share of income going to profits, This recovery looks like a lot of other recoveries, but if you look at how that profit share was realized, it's very different this time. It's a really big increase in prices rather than a suppression of wage growth. And hypothetically, if the government had not been quick to provide stimulus in the aftermath of the 2020 recession, 
and unemployment had been elevated for a longer period of time, might we have uh, seen, instead of an increase in profits, a reduction or suppression of wages? I think that I think if we had not done, say, like the American Rescue Plan at the beginning of 2021, yeah, I think we would have inflation that would be a, a bit lower today, but not that much lower. Um, and then I think we'd have higher unemployment and we'd have quite a bit slower wage growth. And so we would still have seen the, the big rise in profits, but it would have been with slightly um, slower inflation and much slower wage growth. The reason why I don't think we would have had much lower inflation is because if you look across all of the rich countries of the world, inflation is global. It's just happening everywhere. Other countries, ours came a little quicker than some other countries, but they have now very much caught up. And so it's, and if you map the rise in inflation over the past year and a half across those countries against the size of like the fiscal relief packages, all those other countries did, there's no real correlation. And so to my mind, like the, the prime driver of this one is not a, particular piece of legislation or fiscal stimulus the U.S. did. It's mostly just the the bounce back from a once in a century pandemic that has been common across the rich countries of the globe. Um, and so I think mostly what we would have had if we hadn't done the American Rescue Plan, slightly slower inflation, quite a bit higher unemployment, quite a bit slower wage growth, and we wouldn't have created the 6.7 million jobs we created in 2020. So in my mind, all that says, you know, that those are all very bad trade-offs. And I think the key thing is we just couldn't have bought ourselves all that much lower inflation by sort of starving the recovery um, this time. Lastly, to turn back to the Federal Reserve, you know, economic news in the last few months has often referenced Fed interest rate increases. And the Fed, of course, raised its benchmark rate by half a percentage point earlier this month and is expected to do so again at policy meetings in June and July and possibly beyond that. And, uh, you know, half a percentage point sounds small, but it is double the normal quarter point hike. And the expected frequency of such hikes, I don't think, has been seen since the mid 1990s. And there's a concern that these rate hikes that I think you expressed earlier will hurt economic recovery and will have a delayed impact on inflation at best. As such, is there a chance of a return to a recession later this year or next year as the Fed tries to course correct on inflation? I think there is a chance. I mean, I would say at the outset, like so far what the Federal Reserve has done, I don't have huge problems with. I think they've been pretty nuanced. I think you could argue that the half rate, in, half a point rate increase they've done so far is actually mostly just keeping policy kind of neutral rather than tightening it. And that's in part because like real interest rates, inflation adjusted interest rates are like the nominal rate, the rate you pay minus the rate of inflation. So as inflation rises, real interest rates are actually falling. And you could argue the Fed is actually just trying to keep the interest rate, the real interest rate stable in the face of that. So, so far, I'm, I'm pretty good with what they've done. I am worried. You know, there's a ton of pressure on them to just sort of hit the accelerator on interest rate increases. And I think we have an economy that is going to, you know, be subject to pretty rapid changes in 2022. And the circumstances could change a lot and what the proper interest rate policy stance could change quickly. And I don't want them to just get on autopilot. And so like just one example, you know, people have blamed excessive fiscal stimulus in 2021 for the inflation we have. I don't find that super convincing. But we should reckon with the fact that fiscal policy in 2022 is extraordinarily contractionary. Basically, we did lots of spending in the American Rescue Plan in 2021 
that just expires and falls off a cliff in 2022. And so we know one source of demand in the economy is really drying up super quickly. We have the Fed who's raising rates a bit, which is going to cause some more demand to dry up. We know real wages for workers, inflation adjusted wages are falling because wage growth is pretty, is going okay, but price growth is going much ahead of it. And so you see inflation adjusted wage decline. So I think we really could have an economy that flips really quickly from one that needs, you know, some measure of interest rate increases to one that actually needs some support to avoid a recession. And I just hope the Fed remains nimble and open-minded as they go forward. That's Josh Bivens, Director of Research at the Economic Policy Institute. Learn more by visiting epi.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Two weeks ago today, hundreds of daycare centers shut their doors as childcare workers across the country essentially went on strike. Many used the day to send letters, make phone calls, and join rallies. Here's what that sounded like outside City Hall in Philadelphia. Hey, ho, ho! Childcare wages are way too low! This was all part of a day without childcare. National Day of Action, which was organized to demand that more be done to guarantee a living wage for child care providers and affordable child care for all families. Among those who closed business for the day on May 9th was Jana Rodriguez, co-founder and owner of the Innovative Daycare Corp., a home-based center located in her hometown of Freeport, New York. And here she describes the essential service they provide. Here at the Innovative Daycare Corp, we provide childcare services and support our families, mostly for children who come from low-income families, those that normally are subsidized. And so the business really supports subsidized families, per se. And a lot of what we do is that our foundation has been created where our core values are to support not just the child alone, but the family as well. And so the reason why that is important to note is because in order for a child to actually grow and reach their milestones, it just can't happen at an environment that's created during the day. And then when they're no longer in that space, go home and not be able to also be supported in that space as well, right? So we're talking about keeping children balanced and being able to support, like I said, the child both internally at the facility and externally when they are not in our spaces. And so we also incorporate a strong, strong component of the importance of mental health and self-care, where the children are taught from a very, very young age. I mean, by two years old, they're already aware of what mental health entails, what it feels like to speak about your emotions, to be able to describe why you're feeling and how to cope with your emotions. But even despite this vital service that innovative daycare and so many others provide, what is clear is that those who work in this industry are struggling. The average daycare worker earns about $12.40 an hour, or just under $26,000 a year, according to May 2021 data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that's not a living wage. 
In fact, that's barely above the poverty level for a household of three, according to government data. Numerous studies have found that anywhere between 20% and 42% of childcare workers suffer from food insecurity. What that means is high turnover and fewer people wanting to enter the profession. At the root of this, says Jana Rodriguez, are perceptions about who does this essential work and the issue of respect. And so a lot of those that work in our profession, they feel undervalued. And so they are at a turning point before the pandemic where they were deciding or debating as to should I stay in this sector where I am so passionate about everything that I'm doing, yet I don't feel that I'm being respected for what I do and my part in society because we are so essential in the process of a child's life. And I feel that only those that work in our sector don't see us as not competent, but I feel like outside people do view us as not competent enough, where you should be valued to have a pay parity with a K through 12 teacher that you know has a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. But the misperception is that there are so many childcare providers that have bachelor's and master's degree, but because of the way our sector has been stigmatized with this notion that you are not competent is one of the rooted problems as to why we are struggling to keep our doors open if you're a child care provider. Which brings us to A Day Without Child Care, a National Day of Action. The event was organized by Community Change Action, a national organization that builds the power of low-income people, especially people of color, to fight for a society where everyone can thrive. Wendely Marte is economic director at Community Change Action, and she describes what happened on May 9th. So on May 9th, we had uh, hundreds of child care providers that closed their doors. Uh, across the country, we had uh, over 60 actions across the country in 27 states in Washington, D.C. that uh, they participated and led on. And then we had thousands of parents and kids and community members that joined them in those actions. So it was really, I think, a really important moment for our child care movement because it demonstrated not just I think the urgency of the crisis that we're in, but also the hunger from parents and providers and families to to do something about it. And folks did this because, you know, enough is enough. <laughs> We've been really sort of struggling with this crisis in childcare for too long. It was pretty bad uh, before the pandemic, and it's only gotten worse since. Throughout their organizing of the event, Community Change Action framed the issue of child care in America as a racial justice issue. Wendell Marte explains why. Because the majority of the workforce is low-income women of color, uh, and we know that the majority of the families that end up paying for the lack of action on child care, the ones that end up paying the most out of pocket, the ones that end up suffering and struggling to get care in many, in many places are low-income families of color. And so this action on May 9th across the country was really an action led by women of color 
to fight for themselves and their families. And there are three core demands that sort of were anchored in the actions. One was making sure that uh, whatever system we create, because we need to create one for childcare, uh, what we have now is not a system, it's a patchwork of programs. We need an actual equitable system that is grounded in racial justice, that is affordable to all families, and that is actually providing sustaining, living, thriving wages to the workforce. At the federal level, President Biden's Build Back Better plan was supposed to address the child care crisis by capping the cost of child care to 7% of many families' incomes while making it free for others. It would also provide direct support for providers to help with operation costs and hiring more workers. In March, however, the act failed to pass in the Senate, leaving it up to providers and activists, such as Jana Rodriguez and Wendelie Marte, to push for action. spent a lot of the year in 2021 really trying to pass the Build Back Better Act, in part because it included massive investments into child care. It would have essentially been sort of like a huge down payment into this equitable sort of system that I've been talking about. It would have included a lot of um, a lot of the things that we've been demanding. And I would say, too, in part, the reason why we decided to do this day of action on May 9th is because of the, of the inaction from Congress on passing Build Back Better and the fact that it looks like they don't have a plan to do anything about all the things that they're not taking action on, that well, our communities will suffer from not receiving support out of, as a result of not passing Build Back Better. And it couldn't come at a more critical time. Employment in daycare services remains more than 10% below pre-COVID levels, compared with just 1% for the labor market at large. And child care providers cannot compete with the kind of wage incentives being offered by other industries to bring people back into the workforce. And, as Wendelie Marte explains, many child care providers have simply chosen to shut down. Because... Their workers couldn't come in because they were scared or, or because of having to care for their own families in other ways. You know, there's lots of, of things that we've all had to take on during this time. And so family responsibilities have increased. And so a lot of them have had to close because of that or because they have themselves, you know, responsibilities or because they didn't have enough kids coming into their centers, which means that if they're not showing up, they're not getting paid, right? Or they're just concerns and ways to being able to provide a safe environment, like all the decontamination and safety procedures that are needed. Um, many of them didn't get support early on to be able to, to do all of that. And so um, many had to close their doors. So now that May 9th has come and gone, Organizers, such as Wendelie Marte, are already thinking about what they can do to send an even louder message to lawmakers about the need to take action on child care. Because if child care centers are closed, how many more parents will be prevented from re-entering and remaining in the workforce? We are trying to figure out what is the next step. And I can tell you that the next step will come soon. <laughs> Um, and it will include more actions that folks are taking across the country 
Um, it also, I think, will include just, you know, there's lots of organizing work that we need to do to make sure that all these new leaders that we brought into the fight are able to stay in the fight and to engage in some way. And surely that fight will include a focus on the upcoming midterm elections. Absolutely. We're already working with a lot of local partners in many states that are actively trying to make child care priority in the gubernatorial races, in the congressional races, and a lot of the legislative races that folks are um, are paying attention to. There are also really important ballot initiatives that are happening in some places. For example, in New Mexico, there's a ballot initiative. It's a constitutional amendment that would make child care a constitutional right <laughs> for every child in the state. And it would have its own source of funding. There's sort of this education uh, trust fund that has over $26 billion in the state that is not being spent down by the state legislature. And so there's, a, there's an opportunity there to send a clear message for what we can do and how we can make childcare central to your one issue, as I was saying earlier publicly. Um, and, uh, and there are other sites across the country around, you know, expanding pre-K at the sort of local municipal level that we're also supporting. And so definitely lots of activity during the elections to make childcare um, a central component of the public conversation. And I think that elected officials should be paying attention to not just May 9th, but all the other things that folks are doing locally in their communities, because I think that they will be called to account on, on doing something about this and supporting building this equitable childcare system. As for Jana Rodriguez at Innovative Daycare Center, she will be doing what she has to do to keep her doors open, but it comes at a price. Everyone is struggling. I mean, everyone is literally struggling. For me, I am struggling. I'm struggling to make sure that I stay balanced and that I take time out for myself. Because I currently right now, in the past three years with the pandemic, have not been able to take a day off. The first day off that I took was a day without childcare on Monday. And in addition to running her business, Jana Rodriguez will continue to organize so that others will enter the profession she so dearly loves. You know, and I think that we also need to really inspire our youth. You know, I'm not going to be here forever. You know, I'm not, you know. And I really want to ensure that we, we provide that support to, like, all of the early childhood education teachers that are just thinking of even coming into the sector, that this is worthy. This is a great job. You know, this is a rewarding job. Please don't let, you know, the low pay discourage you. We are fighting every day to make sure that we are paid a living wage and that we are respected in our profession. And, and that's really, like, my purpose, besides making sure that all children have access to quality and equitable child care and, and provide the services that they need to be able to flourish and grow and dream. Like, to, to me, like, every child should be able to dream to dream dreams that don't seem attainable. I didn't think this was attainable, and you can see me growing and, and uplifting so many other individuals. And, and you just want to really just bring that about so that that positive energy, you know, is shown, is, is, is given to others. Sometimes people need that little inspiration. That was Jana Rodriguez co-founder and owner of the Innovative Daycare Corp, located in Freeport, New York. We also heard from Wendelie Marte, 
Economic Director at Community Change Action. To find out more about their work on this issue, visit communitychangeaction.org. That is communitychangeaction.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. This is Monday Morning QB. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Amid the rhetorical bluster around the conflict in Ukraine, a very real threat is emerging to the entire world. Beyond shortages of wheat and fuel, and of course the ensuing inflation, the possibility of nuclear war has grown in recent months, with both Russia and NATO making statements reaffirming their commitment to use their massive arsenals if needed. The assurances of mutual destruction may seem simply like game theory posturing, but the consequences of even a limited nuclear exchange, whether by intent or accident, are unfathomable. Hundreds of millions of people could die in the initial blasts, and much of the world's population would then slowly perish from radiation poisoning, starvation, or violence as governments and economies collapse. Avoiding this apocalyptic outcome is a species-wide imperative. But without much fanfare or pushback, nuclear-armed states the world over have been modernizing their arsenals for at least a decade, improving the speed and precision of their weapons. Most recently, Russia in April tested a so-called hypersonic missile, the Sarmat, which is expected to carry at least 10 nuclear warheads, and boasts advances in high-speed maneuverability. But Russia is not alone in refreshing its arsenal, and the global impact of modernization is far from certain. To learn more, we're joined by Matt Korda, Senior Research Associate and Project Manager at the Nuclear Information Project of the Federation of American Scientists. Matt explains how modernization could bring the doomsday clock closer to midnight. Although the I guess the total number of nuclear weapons in the world is slowly declining. Every single nuclear armed country, as you, as you mentioned, is currently modernizing their nuclear arsenals. And not only are they modernizing their arsenals, but in many cases, uh, some countries are actually increasing their military stockpiles as well. So uh, and that number you know, usually refers to the number of um, weapons that are kind of operationally available for deployment. So, you know, just because the global inventory is going down because a lot of countries are um, dismantling these retired warheads. Uh, The number of available nuclear weapons that are very new is going up, right? So, you know, many countries are increasing these stockpiles, China, India, North Korea, Pakistan, um, Russia is is kind of trending on an increase. um, And the UK as well, right? In, In 2021, the UK announced that they were going to start increasing. So, the modernization campaigns of all of these states are largely driven by, I would say, I guess the, the global competitive environment that is being embraced by, by every nuclear arms state, right? So, and we're seeing classic arms race behavior, right? States are improving their own capabilities, and then their competitors are responding to those improvements by developing systems to offset those advantages, and then states have to kind of turn around and match and then exceed those new capabilities. So it's, it's, it's this cycle that's basically impossible to break 
because every country thinks that the other country is building a destabilizing system. And so they are trying to build their own systems to correct what they think is a perceived imbalance. But it's completely zero sum because, you know, they, they both think that each other is doing a destabilizing thing. So the game kind of never ends. And so, you know, as you point out, this leads to a lot of new and, and destabilizing weapon systems being deployed, being developed. And a lot of them, uh, some of the ones that we're seeing now that are being developed are supposed to be operational into the 2070s and 2080s, which implies that these states are committing themselves to nuclear armament for at least half a century into the future, which is, uh, I think, pretty concerning. You're talking about this arms race kind of logic, tit for tat, production of new missiles. Is there any clear off-ramp here? I mean, I suppose it would be a, a diplomatic off-ramp, but is there any clear avenue for diplomacy to break the logic of arms race? Yes, yeah, so, you know, the, the, the only way to win an arms race is, is not to play, right? That's the, the, classic, the classic refrain, but it, but it really is true, right? Because if you're constantly sizing your nuclear forces in comparison to your competitors' nuclear forces, you'll never stop building, right? But if you instead think about what goals nuclear weapons are supposed to achieve, right? So if, if I'm a country who, you know, wants to be able to hold a certain number of targets at risk, that doesn't mean that you need thousands and thousands and thousands of nuclear warheads. You can do that with a very small number, right? So there are countries out there who have, you know, kind of a more minimum nuclear deterrence posture, right? Um, France has, for example, about 300 nuclear warheads, and they've kind of said, you know, this is, this is kind of where we're stopping, because this is the amount that we need to achieve, you know, these operational objectives, and they don't really respond to, you know, how China is changing their nuclear forces, how Russia is changing their nuclear forces, right? They've committed themselves to kind of this posture. You know, up until recently, China had what they, what they kind of called the, the smallest nuclear arsenal that they needed in order to hold a particular set of objectives at risk. And they weren't sizing themselves in comparison to the United States or in comparison to Russia. That might be changing now. We're seeing a lot of change in China's arsenal. But, you know, there are ways to have a nuclear posture that sizes yourself according to really specific objectives, rather than saying, like, oh, my God, Russia's building a new hypersonic weapon, like, we have to build a new hypersonic weapon, right? Like, they're building new ICBMs, we have to build new ICBMs, because your objectives are still the same, but you're responding to military technology changes. Turning domestically, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that the U.S. will spend more than $600 billion over the next decade to, quote, sustain and modernize its arsenal. And the latest uh, National Defense Authorization Act appears to kind of follow that prediction by authorizing billions in, in funding for nuclear forces across the Departments of Energy and Defense. And I think, you know, many progressives domestically had expected that a, a winding down of the conflict in the Middle East, specifically in Afghanistan, could open up maybe some political space to push for more funding for social programs or other domestic spending priorities. What does the modernization process and the, the seeming political weight behind it mean for federal spending over the next several years? I mean, are we locked into a decade of elevated military spending? Yeah, so this is a this is a really important question because the the Pentagon is currently in the middle of a of a budget crisis, right? They have this kind of, you know, bow wave of expenditures that's coming over the next decade and the bills 
for you know all of these really really high profile um, procurement projects, right? So the new ICBM, the long range standoff weapon, the F thirty five, you know B twenty one bomber, the new submarines, right? Like all of these things are coming due roughly at the same time, and the Pentagon has admitted that they can't afford all of these things and they can't afford to do them all at once. But this is also kind of what the like the affordability arguments of nuclear weapons um, sometimes fail to take into account, right? You know, sometimes people talk about, you know, it's nuclear weapons constitute like X percent of the defense budget. You know, first of all, the defense budget is wildly large, right? So even a small percentage is, is hundreds of billions of dollars. But also the true cost of nuclear weapons is not only the amount of money that you're spending to acquire them, but it's also the fact that prioritizing those programs mean that you have to deprioritize other programs that more directly impact the security of Americans, right? So, you know, just think about the 21st century security environment. It's already so different than the, than the Cold War century, right? You know, the greatest threats to our collective safety are, um, for the most part, things that are non-militarized global phenomena, right? Things like climate change, um, you know, domestic unrest inequality, uh, public health crises, right? Like, like these things um, do much more to impact the security of regular people than nuclear weapons. And so with that in mind, like, you know, you know, lawmakers, politicians should really be thinking about, you know, are nuclear weapons the best tools or are they even useful tools to respond to those kinds of threats um, or is prioritizing them above those other things doing more harm than good? One of the provisions in the in the recent National Defense Authorization Act uh, prevents explicitly the reduction of deployed ICBMs below 400, and it, it's that seems interesting in the face of what you're talking about with this budget issue. Where I, I might imagine that if if you have issues funding both conventional and nuclear arsenals, maybe arsenal reduction alongside modernization could help ease some budgetary pressures. And I'm just I'm just curious, would it have been possible to both shrink the arsenal? while modernizing it? Or are those two goals in conflict somehow? No, they are not in conflict at all. Um, they, I think, actually, as you mentioned, go really right in hand, right? The, the, especially, you know, on the, on the ICBM question, there's certainly nothing sacred, right, about the number 400. Um, it wouldn't require a new treaty, right? We're not bound to that uh, in any kind of law other than, um, and, than things like the NDAA. But the United States hasn't always deployed 400 ICBMs, right? That number used to be uh, a lot larger and it shrunk down for a variety of reasons that have not always necessarily been related to security. And in reality, it's been Congress, uh, not the Pentagon, that has been the driving force behind keeping these ICBM numbers as high as possible. And, you know, over the past 15 years in particular, um, the members of the, you know, what's called the Senate ICBM coalition, which is, is made up of politicians from ICBM host states, right? So Wyoming, Montana, North Dakota, and, and also Utah, where there's ICBM maintenance. Um, they have played a really outsized role in dictating U.S. nuclear force posture, and then sometimes even overriding the guidelines set by the military in order to prevent any ICBM reductions from taking place. So, for example, there, there have been a variety of amendments um, around the time of, of New START negotiations around, um, you know, 2013, 2014 or so, 
when the Pentagon and the Obama administration was really looking into uh, reducing the number of ICBMs. And Congress uh, really kind of overruled them and, and put in these amendments into the NDA that said you cannot reduce below 400. And when eventually they were successful there, they kind of, they almost like a little bit bragged about how they overruled the military, right? So it's like, you're, you're getting these really interesting conflicts there. Um, and ultimately that has proved to be really consequential in determining U.S. force posture because, uh, you know, for example, by the time that the new START treaty came into effect in 2018, the reduction of the ICBM leg was substantially smaller than the reductions of either the air leg or the sea leg of the triad. So you can really see how Congress is really the driving factor here. So obviously, you know, Russia and the United States by far wield the largest nuclear arsenals in the world, but they're not the only ones. Um, Our tribals, India and Pakistan, each control dozens of weapons. Um, And you wrote about how in, in March, an Indian missile was accidentally fired into Pakistan. It was not armed and there were no casualties, but it was still a really scary, alarming event. Um, and in a blog post for the Federation of American Scientists, you, you say that this incident revealed how the India-Pakistan standoff, quote, may be much less stable than previously believed, end quote. What's the risk of an accident like this developing into a full-scale nuclear exchange in South Asia? And could modernization help prevent such accidents? Yes, this is a, this is a really scary situation. And, you know, I guess... Although the accident itself was a, was a pretty tremendous error, um, things definitely could have been much, much worse. Uh, as you point out, you know, we got really lucky that the missile was not armed. Um, it didn't hurt anybody. You know, what this tells us is that accidents can always happen, right? Even in the context of nuclear crises, sometimes especially in the context of nuclear crises. And it also reminds us that luck certainly does play a role, right, in preventing crises from escalating further. Um, We can't always expect that nuclear deterrence is going to function exactly as how we predict it will. And thinking that way, you know, risks overconfidence in our own ability to control escalation um, in times of heightened nuclear tensions. And so, you know, that also has implications for how different countries like India and Pakistan Um, posture their nuclear forces, right? So in uh, this report that I wrote for FAS, I noted that, you know, in recent years, um, both India and Pakistan have been placing increased emphasis on achieving this higher level of readiness, right? And in particular, India has been, um, you know, moving towards canisterizing their missiles, right? So which allows them to, uh, you know, launch them much faster um, without having to fuel them in advance. Um, possibly pre-mating missiles with their warheads, right? So, you know, additionally, in in recent years, we've also heard from uh, former Indian officials that um, Indian weapons are in a much higher state of readiness, right? Capable of being operationalized within seconds rather than hours, as as people have recently assumed. So, you know, and we can certainly see that Pakistan is taking steps to respond, right? And increase its own readiness of missiles as well, right? So, you know, this kind of... um, uh, like a mutual increase in readiness is, is pretty scary, right? Because in the context of a crisis or in heightened tensions, you know, if one country thought that the other country was about to conduct some kind of first strike, then the other country could be tempted to use nuclear weapons first. 
beyond you know diplomatic back channels or hotlines are there are there technical changes that can be incorporated into arsenal modernization that reduce the chance of accidents either in the indian contexts or elsewhere yeah so i think um you know india they took a number of steps in response to uh in response to this particular incident that had to do with both um kind of the political ramifications. I think they, they were conducting a court of inquiry. They seem to have found some particular people at fault and, um, you know, there, there will be some, presumably some level of punishment, but on the technical side, um, you know, news stories have stated that they've uh, now added some more error alarms. They, you know, they've increased the number of mechanical steps that, uh, operators would need to take in order to fire a missile, right? So there are some of these like little changes that can be made that that hopefully will prevent um, you know some of these accidents from happening again. That being said, you know I think anything that both India and Pakistan can do to uh, ensure that crisis stability between those two countries is as stable as possible um, would be really welcome. So you know. Um, Personally, I, I think it would be a great idea when, when India completes their court of inquiry to share whatever findings they have with Pakistan, right? To, to show them, right, these, this is what happened. Um, you know, here are the changes that we're making. Uh, and then perhaps both countries can, can collaboratively review, you know, their communication structures, their crisis procedures, and think about, you know, if something like this happens again, especially in the context of heightened tensions, what can we do to make sure that it doesn't spiral out of control? So I would hope that there is some kind of back channel communications going on as well, um, beyond just the really specific technical tweaks that also need to be done. That's Matt Corda, Senior Research Associate and Project Manager at the Nuclear Information Project of the Federation of American Scientists. Read more of Matt's work by visiting fas.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And that's our show for today. Thanks to our engineer, Mike Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Continue to rest gracefully, Eskia, and thank you for listening and for your generous support for our show, WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Thank you.